Good morning. My name's Scott. Would you please stand as I read from God's Word for us this morning? This morning's scripture is from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 7 through 20. I'm sorry, 17 through 25. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It's going to be a rough one. Good to see you all. And welcome to Disciples Church. My name is Jonathan Mosher, and it is my privilege and honor to get to open up the Word of God with you and for you this morning. It is also good to be back at Lake Country Lutheran. If you were not with us uh, last week, we were over at Grace Hill Church. We had our baptism service, had a great time there, um, celebrating steps of obedience in our brothers' and sisters' lives. And so, um, really great to be back. Great to be back on Sunday morning. Great to be back here at Lake Country Lutheran, and great to be back uh, in our series in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And so, if you're not already there in your Bibles, if you can turn to that text, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Well, if you're visiting with us and you heard the text being read this morning, one question that may have popped into your mind is, how and why do these people choose the text of Scripture they're going to preach on any given week? Because when you hear a text like the one that we heard this morning, a lot of thoughts go rolling, people, going, go rolling through people's minds. Depending on your background, your experience, your church exposure, uh, it may be that when you heard money talked about or the idea of paying pastors talked about, there was some sort of diatribe to follow, that there was a hidden agenda or maybe not so hidden agenda in what was about to be said next. But just to give a little bit of insight as to how we approach these sorts of things, we, we believe in an expositional, chronological method of preaching. And all that means is that we're going to pick a book and we're going to work our way through it from beginning to end And so if you're visiting, we just so happen to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5 uh, this week. And one of the things about preaching and teaching in that particular uh, methodology is that you come across some passages of Scripture that are very easy and straightforward to preach, and you come across others that are maybe just a touch more awkward, at least for the preacher, if not for others in the room. And this happens to be one of those weeks, because much of this text is focused on the role and the treatment of elders within the church. And so, in essence, I'm preaching uh, to and about my own role, and Dave's role as well, within the context of Disciples Church. But what I'm comforted by as we talk through this text this morning is that in preaching this, the word itself is being proclaimed. These are not my words. These are not words that we came up with. These are the words, as we just stated, 
This is the word of the Lord himself. And the expectations of a text like this are being, being made clear for us so that you, as part of this church, can understand what it is, to ex- what, what it is that you can expect of elders, how elders are to be treated, um, what the qualifications and the standards for those elders are, and so that you can understand your own expectation as part of this church. So if you remember with us, back to the beginning of this book, we've been working through the book of 1 Timothy. Paul wrote this letter to his young protege, this young man named Timothy, to instruct and encourage him on how it was that he was to pastor this church. It was a church that Paul himself had planted and pastored. It was a church for which Paul had great affection and and a great love. It was a church that he cared deeply about, and so he wanted to make sure that this congregation was being cared for and loved in the best way possible. But there were all kinds of problems that had begun to creep into the church in Ephesus. There were false teachers that had begun proclaiming something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had been proclaiming a self-serving message that was intended to pursue their own agenda and advance their own agenda. This fledgling body had been under siege. People had been given roles of authority and influence who had no business being in roles of authority and influence. Folks within the context of the church were acting and behaving within the gathering in a way that was completely unacceptable to those who know Jesus Christ. And now there had begun a culture in this church that was distracting at best and damaging at worst to the spiritual life of the congregation. And so if you remember back, Paul began his letter by laying out the expectations and the standards that were going to help this church avoid the problems that they were already experiencing. He was giving prescriptive ideas of here's how you here's how you recognize who ought to be an elder and here's how you place an elder and here's who cannot be an elder and here's how you treat widows. He lays out the qualifications for those things in chapters 3 through 5. And in the middle of that and at the very beginning of this letter, Timothy lays out the doctrinal foundation for everything else he's going to say. And what he's going to say is that it is the gospel itself that is the pillar and ground of truth within the context of the church. It's the foundation for everything else that takes place. It's the idea that we have a God who loves us so deeply and so well, who is so richly provided for us through Jesus Christ that we have now become sons and daughters, that he's created a new community, a new family of faith, not bound by relational blood, but bound by the blood of Jesus himself. And in creating this new family, he creates expectations for how it is that that family is to operate with one another in the same way that you might have your own family rules, expectations for your kids, expectations for how you as a married couple perhaps treat one another or ways that you are to interact with your parents. All of those same sorts of expectations are laid out for us in this book. And the whole idea behind all of it is this, that there ought to be a healthy church that is led and cared for well by qualified men of God who in representing God to that congregation, not standing in his place, but but speaking on his behalf through his word, properly shepherd and love the people. And after giving those proactive instructions by which we can avoid the problems that he's already addressed, Paul now turns his attention to the particular issues at hand. And the question here that Paul wants to face is this, how is this church to both care for its pastors And how is the church to exercise discipline in the case of unrepentant sin 
on the part of its pastors. It's a heavy text in some ways. It's a very practical text in others. But let's begin by looking at verse 17. Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So apparently what was happening in this Ephesian church was that some of the elders, some of the qualified men, these are not the false teachers, but these are actual qualified godly men who've been serving the congregation and proclaiming the word and caring for the body in Ephesus, had found themselves in this position where their financial needs were not being met. The church had not done its part in caring for these men and in meeting their financial needs. And based on the information in this letter, some theologians speculate, and it is speculation, but I think it's probably speculation that's rooted in some of the evidence we find in this text. They speculate that there had been kind of a perfect storm that had arisen in the church in Ephesus. That you had men who had perhaps grown jaded with the occupational ministry, the ministry of the gospel, their own pastorate, because they were not having their financial needs met. And at the same time, you had a group of wealthy women in the church, primarily those who'd been widowed, and there was a correlation between these two groups, some of these men who had been prematurely placed into their role as elders and perhaps even were morally unqualified, began to find comfort and financial security in the relationships with some of those wealthy widows. And that in turn, their teaching had been colored by the opinions of wealthy benefactors. And so Paul begins to write in this particular portion of 1 Timothy saying, I want you to make sure that the elders of the church are properly qualified, and he says that in chapter 3, but also that those who faithfully labor ought to be compensated for their efforts. Paul references this text that, for all intents and purposes, is relatively obscure to us. It comes from the book of Deuteronomy, and and he, he references this text to illustrate his point, because in the Old Testament, what was common among the pagan nations, the neighbors of Israel, is that when, their, uh, when the farmers went out into the field, they would actually muzzle the oxen that were treading out the grain, or that were working in the fields, or that were plowing. They would actually muzzle those oxen in an effort to selfishly have more gain for themselves. They wanted all of the harvest. They wanted all of the potential financial uh, benefits of that harvest. They wanted everything to come back to them. And so they would actually muzzle the ox who were physically doing the labor in an effort to line their own pockets. And so God writes to them through the mouth of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. And he says, I want you to, to do things differently than your pagan neighbors. I don't want you to be all about your own financial gain or your own personal benefit. Instead, I want you to do things in a proper way that demonstrate that I, as your God, am your provider. That you don't need to selfishly be worrying about your own bottom line because I will take care of you. And part of how the, the Israelites communicated that to their pagan neighbors was by allowing their oxen to eat even as they performed work. It was the animal's rightful wage. It was a way to demonstrate their dependence on God. And so in this text, Paul is saying in the very same way, if an elder is ruling well, if he's doing his job appropriately, if he's doing the work of the ministry, if he's caring for the people, especially, in, especially by laboring in the preaching and the teaching of God's Word, it is good and right that he be compensated 
for that work. And the question then must be asked, well, what is the faithful labor that is deserving of compensation? And he lays out two ideas for us. They're really two sides of a coin. They go together, and he says this. First, they rule well, and second, they labor in preaching and in teaching. Now, that word rule is an interesting one for us. As Americans, as Westerners in the, in the eyes of the broader world, we don't like the word rule. It feels uncomfortable to us. It doesn't sit quite right with us. But the truth is that our tendency within the church is to impose the world's political systems on the actual governance of the church. And here's how that typically plays out. In some churches, what you end up having is elders or church leaders or pastors who operate as little kings unable to be challenged, unable to be confronted, unable to have conversations or to be questioned with no accountability either within their staff or among their elder board or within the church at large. They operate by their own whim and by their own will, and they've created little fiefdoms for themselves. And in other churches, what they've tried to do in in an effort to combat that sort of overreach is they've really tried to tried to impose the American system on the church. That the elders and leaders and pastors of a church are nothing more than the elected representatives of the people. And that if we can get our guy in, we can have our voice heard, and therefore we can affect change within our system. But the pattern that we see laid out in Scripture is inherently different. The pattern laid out in Scripture is that God is firmly at the top of the organizational chart, and that he's put put expectations around the leadership of the church so that the church can be rightly led. And the way that that plays out in the New Testament in particular is that elders, pastors, and we use those terms interchangeably, interchangeably here at Disciples, elders and pastors are called by God, they are recognized by other elders, and they are affirmed by the church that the role of the elder is to receive this responsibility from God and then represent him well. And part of how they represent him well here is by ruling well. And when Paul says this, what he's saying is that they have a responsibility to lead and to shepherd the people of God, to lead those who are going to give an account, to lead those rather as those who are going to give an account before the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. We talked about this several weeks ago when we were in 1 Timothy 3, but I just want to remind you of the structure here. I just said that God was at the top of the organizational chart, and we find that in Hebrews chapter 13 where it says, let those who are leading among you, the elders who are shepherding the church, understand that there is coming a day in which they will stand before God himself for the way they led. And that ought to make pastors, myself included, stop and consider how serious a charge we've been given. That God has entrusted his most prized possessions, his blood-bought people, his children, his adopted family, that he has entrusted those people to under-shepherds, to pastors and to elders, who are to care for them and love them and instruct them and correct them and support them and encourage them. They're to counsel and admonish. They're to encourage and correct. And Paul says the first responsibility of the elder is to rule well. 
not under some sort of outward obligation, not to rule unwillingly, but to lovingly and sacrificially and boldly and confidently lead God's church in a given location. But Paul doesn't just stop there. He says, not only are you to rule well, but you're also to preach and teach well. Now, here's where we get into an interesting little diatribe, and it's not particularly important or germane to this topic. But understand that when the Bible uses the word preaching and teaching, it doesn't really make a distinction in what those words mean. And so if you start to read books uh, that talk about preaching and teaching, often they'll try to define those words, and they'll end up defining them as being the same thing. And so here's my best attempt at trying to define the two, because some people will look at the idea of preaching and teaching, and they'll say there's no difference at all, there's no distinction at all, and I would argue against that because I I, I see the Scripture consistently making a distinction between preaching and teaching, so there must be some sort of a difference. Other people say that it's just a stylistic thing, that some people are teachers, they just get up and they read as as if they're reading a commentary, and other people are are preaching with fire and brimstone. They've got that kind of personality or that stylistic element to the way that they talk and that that's actually what defines preaching. I argue against that because of historical examples. We know, for instance, that Paul himself was not an impressive person. We know that historically within our own American context, we had preachers like Jonathan Edwards who who was known to have gotten up with a manuscript and to have read his sermon in a monotone voice. And yet what he was saying was so powerful that in the case of one of his sermons, people were literally clinging to the backs of the pews for fear that hell was going to open up underneath their feet. So preaching can't just be stylistic. I would define it this way. I think teaching is the explanation of the Word of God. It's reading God's Word and it's trying to unpack its meaning and its truth and its depth for people to understand intellectually, to have an understanding in their minds of what it is that the Bible is actually saying. And if I were to try to define preaching, I would steal Martin Lloyd-Jones's definition, which is this. Preaching is truth on fire. That truth is so made alive by the power of the Word of God and by the Spirit that indwells us that when that Word is rightly proclaimed, the Holy Spirit takes it as if it were and translates it into the language of our own hearts so that we can not only understand it intellectually but begin to apply it on a lifestyle level. That it is transformative at its root. That the gospel has the power to change not only the mind but the heart as well. That the affections and the desires, the very makeup of who you are is transformed when exposed to the power of the gospel. But however one wants to define those words, the elder is called to rule well and to labor in preaching and teaching. In other words, the elders rule the church to the extent that the Bible has given them the authority to do so. And their leadership is directly related to their understanding of the Word. So they lead a church in its decision-making and its direction. They shepherd, they feed, they care for the sheep in a way that is neither self-serving nor done under compulsion, but out of a heart, rather, that desires to faithfully serve the people. And in doing so, to lead people to the Savior. So if I had to sum up the key idea of this opening verse, the proclamation of the Word of God through preaching and teaching 
is both the gospel message that elders are called to deliver and the gospel means by which they have the authority to deliver it. It's why preaching and teaching is so vital for a church. It's why we spend the lion's share of our time together in the Word of God. Because for elders, ruling well and preaching necessarily go hand in hand, and the church loses its way when either of those elements is diminished. When elders begin to de-emphasize the faithful proclamation of the Word, what they begin to do inevitably is to turn the church into a social club rather than a family of believers. A place where at best, the church sets out to serve the community, but does so without the power of the gospel or the gospel motivation for service to begin with. Likewise, when elders emphasize proclamation, the right preaching of God's Word, but neglect the instruction on authority, they will either de-emphasize their shepherdly responsibilities and allow the people of God to walk in sin and unaccountability, or they will overemphasize their own authority and use people as a means to advance their own agenda. And either direction is an absolute pitfall. It is deadly for the church of God. And I want you to see that Paul here is not giving two different classes of elders. He's not saying that there are some, some elders that rule the church and there's other elders that teach the church, but rather that the, ch- the charge to the church to financially support elders only extends to those who have shown themselves to be worthy by virtue of their proper rule and their work in preaching and teaching. So understand what this means. First Timothy chapter 3 says that all elders are to be apt to teach. It's part of the qualification of what it is to be an elder to begin with. If you can't teach the Word of God to other people, you are inherently not qualified to be an elder within the context of the church. But understand as well that some people, by virtue of their gifting, may end up doing substantially more of that labor, of that teaching, than other people. And the charge here is to provide compensation, support, financial remuneration to those that are laboring in preaching and teaching so that they can have the opportunity and the focus for proper preparation. And we find that in this text as well as in Acts chapter 6, verses 3 through 4. But what I appreciate about Paul here is that he doesn't stop with just talking about financial support. He actually goes on to say, I want you to extend double honor. Now, why in the world does he use that language? Why double honor? I think what he's saying is, he's saying it's not just money or financial support, but there is inherent honor that goes along with the position of elder. Why? Because the laborer deserves his wages. If you don't pay someone for their work, you have certainly not shown them honor. And let me put this into a real stark example for you. Imagine that you were to go into your job tomorrow morning and you were to finish out your day of work and your boss were to come up to you and say, hey, listen, I just want you to know you've been doing such a great job around here. We love having you. We're so thankful for you. And that's why we're going to withhold our check. But I'm going to go on and on for a little while about what a great job I think you're doing here. How does that sound? You know, the whole idea of doing a good job as its own reward... There's a natural disconnect in that when it comes to labor, when it comes to our work itself. 
And there's a tendency among some within the Christian community to view the pastoral role in one of two extremes. Either that by virtue of one's decision to enter into occupational ministry, in other words, by virtue of your decision to become a pastor, you are necessarily choosing a life of a pauper. Or two, that by means of of entering full-time ministry, you have entered an entrepreneurial enterprise with limitless financial potential. That this is somehow your means of building your own kingdom and lining your own pockets. But Paul, in writing this, is hedging against both extremes. In chapter 5, he's saying that there are serious considerations of financial stewardship and provision that pastors must rightly consider and that congregations must rightly provide for and that, as he said in chapter 3, pastors are not to be lovers of money. In other words, we're talking about heart motivation. What drives you to do what you do as a pastor? And the expectation that Paul's going to lay out for us is that a pastor who rightly exercises his God-given responsibilities and skill sets is supposed to be the recipient of generous and cheerful support by the church. Why? Because it's true labor, at least if you're doing it right. He continues on then by going into verse 19, and I want you to notice the juxtaposition between these two verses because it's stark. He says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Let me just stop right there. What he's going to say is part of the honor that you extend to an elder, that you extend to a pastor, is that you are giving the benefit of the doubt when there are half-truths or slanderous accusations being made. There is a particular standard that the Bible itself sets up for an accusation that's made against an elder. And that standard that Paul lays out is this. You ought not make an an accusation against an elder unless there is evidence of misbehavior or a failure of character by two or three witnesses. And the whole idea behind this is that if this person is in a position of honor, if they have demonstrated by virtue of their character and by virtue of their history that they are someone who can be trusted and they've been faithful with the word of God and they've been faithful to serve the church of God, then you ought to extend them this particular honor. But then notice verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. That's a heavy verse. And what Paul is saying is this, the benefit of the doubt ought to be given to a pastor or elder who has accorded themselves properly throughout their ministry, but if an accusation has been substantiated... If there's been a moral failing, a failing of character, an, a- an element of their behavior that is, that is beyond the pale, a serious accusation, and if that accusation has been substantiated, there is an opportunity first for that elder to demonstrate his dependence on his Savior through repentance. We find that in the beginning of verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, in other words, this particular elder has been confronted with his sin, and for whatever reason, he has refused to acknowledge his sin or repent of his sin. There's an opportunity when pastors fail, particularly when they fail publicly, whether it's considered a major failure or a minor failure, to take ownership for their mistakes or for their misdeeds, 
and to repent in a way that people are able to see. And the benefit of that is that you are demonstrating as a pastor what it is to be a follower of Christ. That you, just as much as anybody, is in desperate need of a Savior. That you, as much as, ever, as anybody, are in desperate need of the grace that comes only from God. And understand this, the elder is to be an example in his lifestyle, and that includes in repenting when his sin overtakes him. And if he will not repent, but persists in sin, he faces a very similar action as what we see in Matthew chapter 18, public correction. Let me just be clear. I don't think the point of this instruction from Paul is to be cruel or unkind to the pastor. Correction in the life of a believer, a pastor included, is always intended to lead us to restoration. It's never punitive It's always restorative. But if an elder will not repent, there is to be discipline. So notice now the instruction given to Timothy, verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Now, why does Paul even need to include this? And again, we have to remember the context. Paul knew to whom he was speaking. Remember that in chapter 4, Paul spoke to Timothy about his age, and he encouraged Timothy to not let his youth be a reason for others to dismiss him. And now in this moment, young Timothy is being put in this awkward position of having to confront and correct and potentially even expose those elders in the church who had been involved in unrepentant sin. You can imagine how uncomfortable this must have been for him. These were men with whom he had ministered early in his career. These were men who undoubtedly at some point or another had loved him well had cared for him well. And now he's being put in the position of confronting them. These were perhaps men who'd been friends, older men, perhaps men who had influence and the ear of the congregation. And you can imagine that everything in Timothy does not want to do this. It's a painful thing to confront like this. But Paul himself calls upon the presence of God in communicating the importance of Timothy's task. He says, specifically, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, he's swearing by heaven in this moment, saying in the presence of all of these things, God himself included, you are to be bold in the task that you are being given. And that's important because Timothy's tendency might have been to undersell the seriousness of these issues, to soft-pedal his concerns, to sweep under the rug what was going on within the context of the church. But Paul is saying here, Paul is saying you need to address these sins because hiding them has the potential to create even greater harm for the church down the road. So John Stott, the great old Anglican preacher, once said this about this text. He said, such a public rebuke, though an effective deterrent, must be the last resort It is a safe rule that private sins should be dealt with privately and public sins publicly. It is neither right nor necessary to make what is private public until all of the possibilities have been exhausted. But if those possibilities are exhausted, this is the looming warning over the head of the preacher. 
that some might question how this is loving. How is it loving to make someone's sin known publicly? But it all depends how you define love. Do you remember how we defined it in our last series? We referenced the definition of Thomas Aquinas who said this, love is willing the good of the other. Love is not merely sentimental. It is not merely emotional. It is saying, I care about you so much. I care about your deepest needs. In this case, I care about your soul to such an extent that I am willing to do what is personally awkward or difficult in an effort to care for and love you. And understand, even as Paul lays this out, there's a very real beauty in the balance of this text. Paul wants to make sure that the elder is properly provided for financially and that he's protected in the case of slanderous accusation. But in the case of validated, serious, unrepentant sin, Paul wants now to protect the church. And he demands public correction of the elder in such a case. And so this text is instructional both to the pastor and the congregation. But let's continue to move forward through this text. Verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself, Timothy, pure. Now, this verse offers insight for us that the root of the leadership problem in the church, the root of all of these failures that were now demanding correction, was the fact that elders had been established far too quickly. And certainly, many of the church's problems today are connected to that very same idea where you have gifted, skilled, passionate, motivated men who are far too young in their faith or maturity to step into the role of being an elder. Or, where you have people who on paper seem perfectly qualified to be an elder, but are not yet well enough known by the elders in a particular context to rightly be put in a role of leadership. And when success as a church is measured by growth, whether that's structural growth or numerical growth, the pressure to move too quickly is not far behind. And when that happens, churches establish leaders who are not ready for the responsibilities they're given. And you head into this process slowly to avoid heartache later on. Verse 22 is saying, if elders rush to lay hands too quickly and bring somebody else on as an elder before due diligence is done, they not only, they not only damage the church, but they become partly culpable for the failure of that individual. And when he says to Timothy, keep yourself pure, what he's saying is, don't allow yourself to become guilty by association, by laying hands too quickly on someone who is not ready for that role. Now verse 23, we'll move through it quickly. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, you may notice that this is actually put in as a parenthetical. This is something that is specific to Timothy. And I don't know that too much needs to be made of this verse, but according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, 1 Timothy chapter 1, or rather Titus uh, chapter 1, verse 7, pastors are expressly permitted to partake in alcohol. They're certainly not from, forbidden from participating in it, but the forbiddens is on participating in alcohol to the point of drunkenness or addiction. But it seems that Timothy, in this context, out of an abundance of caution, had chosen to abstain from alcohol altogether. 
This has come to Paul's attention, and now Paul also finds out that Timothy has these underlying health concerns. One could even surmise, based on reading this, that these are connected to the anxiety and the stress that he's experiencing within his role in the church. And now Paul not only gives permission, but actually commands Timothy, you need to take a little wine for your your stomach's sake. You need to take care of yourself physically in this season. Verse 24. Maybe the most interesting verses in this otherwise very technical portion of 1 Timothy 5. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, hidden, not easily seen, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Now in this final verse, Paul is returning to his conversation about the qualification of elders and elder candidates. And here's what he's saying. The reason that we are to be slow in the laying on of hands is that there are some sins and some character flaws that only reveal themselves over time. And not only does Paul speak to the disqualification of some being revealed over time, but also notice this. This is fascinating to me. He also points out that the qualifications of some are only apparent over time. You see, the proper vetting of elder candidates does not end with the question, do they meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3? If you were here for that sermon on 1 Timothy 3, one of the things that we said about that is that while this is laid out as a necessary qualification for elders, what Paul is actually describing there is the hope for every believer that every believer would be living this life, that it wouldn't be unique to elders, but that certainly for elders, it's a pre-qualification. But the reason that qualifications do not end simply with 1 Timothy 3 is that elders must also be recognized by their good works. Are these men who are willing to care well for the saints? Are these men who are leading their families for the Lord? Are they working to meet the needs of those around them? Are they devoting themselves to the Word? Do they have a temperament and a disposition that allows them to work alongside other elders and understand that those qualifications and those characteristics are not always immediately apparent? Why? Because men who are doing these good and right things out of a love for God typically are not also trumpeting their qualifications. I've met men over the years who had all the credentials in the world on paper to be elders of a church. The right education, the right experience, they were knowledgeable, they were gifted. But behind closed doors, they were men who were difficult, who were disrespectful, who were arrogant, who were self-serving, who were rigid. I've met men who, who could preach with skill and boldness but stated that while they loved preaching, they just don't like people. To which I say, then you are not a pastor. And likewise, I've met men who on paper were far less impressive candidates, but they were men who led their families well and who loved their wives well. They were men who ministered to their neighbors and handled the word well. They lived lives of integrity and honesty, and they served the church in quiet and often unnoticed ways. 
and it takes time to see and recognize both the hidden disqualifications and the hidden qualifications of elders. Elders are to be these men who meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3, who have the integrity and the temperament to care for and work well with others, all the while being engaged already in shepherding those who are around them. In other words, you don't give someone a title so that they can begin doing the work of an elder. You find someone who is already doing the work of an elder and you give them a title. So brothers and sisters, at the end of this very practical instruction from the Apostle Paul, I'd ask that you not only today but in the weeks to come, pray. Pray for me and Dave that we would be faithful to work and to shepherd in a way that is honoring to God in a way that serves and loves you, this dear congregation, well. Pray that as a church, through our interactions with one another, the world would see a reflection of a gracious and generous God and be drawn to our Savior. Pray that we would be a congregation that is no longer shocked by sin, but is now shocked by the fact that we have a God so gracious that he's willing to pursue sinners like us. See, everything that we need, every principle we need in order to learn how to care for and challenge and encourage and walk with, an, walk with one another is in God's word. And so brothers and sisters, let's be devoted to that word. Do you understand that that is the work of the ministry that belongs to you? to be like the Bereans, to be so invested and devoted to the Word of God that you begin to know it and love it and embrace it and live it. To be people who are so marked by their love for the Word that it becomes a hallmark of your very life. And that happens little by little, day by day, as we learn to read and understand and grow through the Spirit's blessing and the living word of God. So pray for us, pray with us, love one another well, serve one another well, and pray that God would continue to raise up men who would love and care for the congregation and have the sort of integrity that this text calls for. It is a high calling, and it may be one that God has for you in your life. Let's be faithful to search these things out. Let's pray. God, I thank you for a text that in many ways is a challenge to us, not only because of its practical nature and that it is so matter-of-fact in the way that it says what it says, but also one that challenges our natural assumptions. God, I pray that leaders of this church, present and future, would be those who are marked by integrity, by faithfulness, by being quick to repent, by being willing to challenge, and by loving so deeply that they're willing to, willing to will, the, will the good of the other, to say even things that are challenging and difficult for the sake of caring for one another and the congregation well. God, we need, we need your blessing and your leadership in order to be faithful to these things. And God, I thank you 
that while the role of elder pastor is significant, I thank you, God, that ultimately the responsibility for the growth of people individually, for the transformation of souls, does not belong to us, but it belongs to you. That as the word is faithfully preached and teached, that as the church is ruled well, as the congregation is cared for and the word is proclaimed, that lives inevitably will be changed. And I thank you that we can trust you to do what we are incapable of doing. So God bless us as you blessed us in the past. Call us, to be, call us to continue to be faithful to you in everything that we do. And it's for your glory and in your name that we pray. Amen.